But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of my favorite churches anywhere is St. Paul's Cathedral in London. What a beautiful church. Whenever you walk in the door, you, you just feel the presence of God. It's tall spires. It's, it's beautiful dome. It's been said that people have been worshiping there since 608. That's 1,400 years ago. I mean, it's really kind of hard to map, wrap your mind around. The present building was designed by Sir Christopher Wren, and it was finished in 1711. It's this beautiful, iconic church, this cathedral, that means so much to the people of England. I told you a couple of weeks ago how, in the summer of 1940, Hitler turned his attention to trying to conquer England. And he began to bomb the city, wanted to bomb them into submission... He began to firebomb them and tried to burn the city to the ground. Churchill called on volunteers, the St. Paul's Watch, to climb up onto this high dome. And there, if they saw an incendiary bomb, to grab it and throw it off. Or if the flames were growing closer from other fires around it, to fight it back. I mean, these people were willing to sacrifice and serve to save this incredible place of worship. Through all that was going on, through all these weeks after weeks after weeks, only once did a bomb hit the church. It was on the far east wing. It didn't touch the dome. It didn't destroy things inside the church except at that end. And it also destroyed the organ, which had to be replaced. But when the war was over, the people of England gave their money in order to rebuild this east wing there of St. Paul's Cathedral. And what they rebuilt was the American Memorial Chapel. They decided they wanted to add on an American Memorial Chapel to this incredible, iconic cathedral to say thank you for what we had done in World War II. When you walk in the doors of the church, I mean, you get this sense of awe and grandeur. and You come down the aisle, this big place where they would worship and the pulpits and at the far end is a high altar. You have to go along the sides to get in and then you kind of step up and it's this beautiful place. Behind it is stained glass windows. And you know, when you look at stained glass windows, quite often you just kind of think, well, there's Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Jesus. 
Well, when if you take a moment and look at these stained glass windows, you're staring at it and you'll realize, no, you're looking at George Washington. You're looking at the American eagle, the American flag, all the symbols of different states around the United States. It is stained glass for America. And it's really put into three different panels with its messages. There is service, there is sacrifice, and there is the resurrection. And what they did was they created this beautiful place and then this altar. And you come into the altar and there is this beautiful case and this ornate book. And what the book is, it's the names of all the Americans who came through England to fight in the European theater and who died in World War II. And what they do is every day they turn the page. One page every day so you can read the names that day of all the people who came and died so that England and the world could be free. I stood there. I stood there looking at all of these names and I just began to wonder, what would my world be like today if Hitler and the Nazis had won? If they had conquered England, what would the world be like today? And I thought of all the people who were willing to serve and to sacrifice so we could be free. One of those stories was Billy Fisk. Billy Fisk was an interesting person. He, he was born in 1911 in Chicago. He grew up in a family of means. He had all the opportunities that money could buy. His father was an international banker. But Billy, he would enjoyed all the opportunities that were given to him and tried to use them well. He was sent to go to school in France when he was 13 years old. And while he's in France, he learned how much he loved the winter sports and he learned how to drive a bobsled. And in the end, he put together a bobsled team for the 1928 Olympics to be held in St. Moritz, Switzerland. He was 16 years old, and he was the bobsled driver, and the United States team won the gold. He was the youngest person ever to win a gold medal for the next 60 years. Well, he was so good, and four years later, 1932, the Olympics were held in Lake Placid, and he was the flag bearer. Again, he put together the bobsled team and won gold again. It came to the 1936 Olympics, and obviously he could have gone to that and probably won gold again, but you remember the 36 Olympics were held in Germany. And he did not like what he saw going on in Germany. He didn't like what he saw happening to the Jews. And so he decided to skip the 1936 Olympics. You see, he had come to have a great love for England and Europe. When he graduated his high school there in France, he went to Trinity College at Cambridge there in England. He came to love the people of England. In fact, he met his wife there and fell in love, and they got married. He came back to the United States. He became this uh, lawyer and investment banker, lived in New York City part of the time, lived in England part of the time, he had a great love for England. But it was in 1937, after he had skipped the Olympics, 
that he and a friend of his went out to Colorado and they thought we need to develop some resorts like St. Moritz here in the United States where people could enjoy all the different uh, winter sports. And so they found this little mining town and they installed a first ski lift and they decided to call this new little place Aspen. He did pretty well with that place. They created Aspen, but he would never really see it come all to fruition. Because you see, the war began to break out. And Billy would say, I know this will make my family anxious, but England has been there for me in the best of times. And I need to now be there for them, even though I'm probably more afraid than anybody else. He went to England and he wanted to sign up with the RAF, the Royal Air Force. But at that point, Americans were not allowed to go and fight in the war. So he created false papers that he was a citizen from Canada. And he went and interviewed the RAF and got accepted and became a pilot. He actually became the first American pilot to be fighting with the RAF in World War II. He was an incredibly humble and kind young man. Everybody loved him, and he was a natural pilot. He was good. He started fighting in the middle of the Battle of Britain. You remember, that's when Winston Churchill said, Never have so many owed so much to so few. And he was referring to the pilots who went up night after night to fight against the Nazis and to fight against those bombers night after night. He flew 42 missions with incredible success. But on his 42nd mission, he was killed. He was 29 years old. He had become so well-loved by all of his comrades, by all these people that he was flying with, even by Winston Churchill who had come to know him. He was given a, a special funeral, and there it was said about him, Here was a young man for whom life held much, under no kind of compulsion, he came to fight for Britain. He came, he fought, he died. He was the first American pilot to die fighting in World War II. Now, if you go to St. Paul's, I've told you, if you go down in the basement, it's a crypt. They've got all these tombs of all these special, famous, and important people in the history of England. And besides all of the, these tombs, they also have plaques all along the wall for, again, people they felt were significant to their history. And if you go through the, the crypt down there below St. Paul's, you will find a plaque for William Fisk. It simply says, an American citizen who died that England might live. To give your life for something that is bigger than you. Service, sacrifice, resurrection. I stood there in that chapel because I wanted to remember, give thanks, and gain a vision about the future. This morning, I want to continue on with this sermon series things you'll never regret. And I told you that 
It was partly inspired by a book I read. It was entitled, The Five Greatest Regrets of the Dying. Well, it's interesting. They talked a lot about one of the regrets of those who were getting close to death is when they come to realize that they spent their whole life chasing, making money, acquiring material things, or just having pleasure. None of which in and of themselves are bad or wrong, but when that's all that your life stands for, you come to the end and realize you missed it. Because everybody wants their life to have a sense of meaning and purpose and to know that it made a difference in this world. When you and I choose to give ourselves to something bigger than ourselves, that's something you'll never regret. Today is All Saints Sunday. It is this day that really goes back to Martin Luther. Last week we were looking at Martin Luther and the celebrate the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation when Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis to the church door in Wittenberg. And we said that was the beginning. And Martin Luther had a theology that said, we're the priesthood of all believers. That is, the laity were elevated, the priests were brought down. The priests were no longer considered better than the laity, nor was the pope or the cardinal... No, we are all the priesthood of believers. Everybody matters to God and everybody has the same responsibility to serve God. Well, it was growing out of that theology, the priesthood of all believers, that it came along with the idea of All Saints Sunday. Because you see, in the Catholic Church, always had been there were those who were lifted up to be saints better than other people. And Martin Luther wanted to say, no, we are all saints in the church. The followers of Christ who choose to serve and sacrifice are the saints on whose shoulders you stand. And so the first Sunday in November historically has been a Sunday for churches to remember the members of their family of faith who have died, who are now the saints on whose shoulders they stand. And that's why we thought it was important and right today to remember those. I love the video that we were watching a moment ago. All these special people who have loved this church, who gave, who sacrificed so that we could have such an amazing place. It's what we're going to be doing this afternoon as as we remember and rededicate our bells and and as we remember V.V. Harris and what he meant to the life of this church and what he gave. But it's what it's for all of us to give, all of us to be the people, the saints on whose shoulders another generation one day will stand to give our lives for something bigger than ourselves. That's why I chose the scripture lesson that I did this morning. And, you know, as a preacher, you love Easter. What an Easter message. And yet you get to preach on that passage once a year. And I decided that's just wrong. I'm going to preach on Easter this year. No reason in the world not to, because we're remembering the saints on whose shoulders we stand. Service, sacrifice, and resurrection. And so I wanted us to go back and remember the passage of when the women came to the tomb on Easter morning and they found the tomb empty. He is raised from the dead. 
And the women were afraid and the angel said, don't you remember what he told you? That he's going to go to Galilee before you? And then it says in verse 8, and they remembered what he said. That was the key point. That was the turning point. And they remembered what he had said. It wasn't about going to Galilee. What they remembered was, oh, the sermon he gave on the mount. Or the time that he had to feed 5,000 people and what he said. Or when he told a story about a son who went to his father and asked for his fair share of the inheritance and went away and made a mess out of his life. Right after Jesus was raised from the dead, the people who were his followers got together to remember what he said, to talk about what he did. They worshiped him, and as they did that, they felt his presence. And it gave them hope and strength. And that's why you and I have come together today to remember what Christ had to say. It's why we come to remember the saints on whose shoulders we stand, what they had to say. Because as we remember, we feel their presence and it gives us hope and it gives us strength. It leads us to the future. It's what I want us to think about this morning. There's just two things that I want us to see. First of all, I believe it was the disciples who would remember what Jesus said on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The message always begins with God's grace forgiveness. They would remember, those who had failed, we are forgiven. And that Christ asked them to forgive now one another. Over and over they would talk about what Jesus said. How do you treat people with respect? How do you treat people with compassion? You know, right now you and I are living in a time when we just seem to think it's okay to say anything about anybody. We sometimes are so critical and we call each other names and we seem to be losing a sense of civility. As Christians, we are called to a higher standard. We can't change what everybody else does, but you and I can decide what we do to treat one another with a greater sense of dignity and respect we're called to a higher standard than that in the rest of the world. You know, I look at what goes on right now in the entertainment industry. I look at what's said in politics. I look at what gets said in sports. Speaking about sports. <laughs> I had a really good week this last week. I was born and raised in Houston. And I don't know about you, but I had a great time watching the World Series. Now, I, I felt almost like a little bit of a traitor because I love our Dodgers farm team here in Oklahoma City. And I cheer for them. I love going down to the stadium. But I was born and raised in Houston, and I used to cheer for the Houston Buffs, the AAA team before they became the Colt 45s, before we built the Astronome and became the Houston Astros. My whole life I've waited for them to win the World Series. We've made it to the World Series once, and now is the second time. And I can tell you, Marsh and I were standing there in the living room, and I was crying when they won the World Series. 
I mean, what a moment it actually was. But as we were celebrating how it had been so long, 56 years, I couldn't help but also remember the year before the Chicago Cubs won and it had been 108. 108 years since they had won the World Series. And when I thought about that, it reminded me of a story I heard two months ago. It just happened two months ago. And it had to deal with an incident that took place in 2003 in the Chicago Cubs. Some of you may remember. 2003, the Chicago Cubs finally had made it to the National League Championship playoffs. Hadn't been there in decades. They got there. It was in the sixth game. They were up by three runs, five outs, and they were going to the World Series for the first time in ever. And there was a fly ball on the left-hand side. And Moses Alou, the outfielder, ran over to catch the ball for the Cubs. And they were at home, and one of the Chicago fans reached out to also catch the ball, hit the ball, and the outfielder didn't catch it for an out. It simply fell, and it was simply a strike. Well, everybody began to hiss and boo and scream because everyone was feeling the pressure. And then that batter got a hit, and the Florida Marlins rallied for eight runs. They took the lead. Chicago lost the game. It went to game seven. They lost game seven. And they then, the Florida Marlins went to the World Series and won. And the curse was still in place. That night, the man who reached out and happened to hit the ball was a man named Steve Bartman. He loved the Chicago Cubs. But when he touched that ball and the guy couldn't catch it, people began to boo and hiss and scream at him. People started spitting on him. People threw beer on him. It got so bad that the security had to come and escort him out of the stadium for his safety. And then when they lost and they didn't make it to the World Series, he began to receive death threats. So many people took out ads against him. He finally had to leave Chicago and went to Florida to try to kind of be underground and no one know him. He let things cool down and then finally slipped back into Chicago to go back to work. People tried to get him to write a book or do commercials, capitalize, make some money on this whole deal. He'd have none of it. He'd never been back to the Chicago Stadium until about two months ago when the Chicago Cubs were finally getting their World Series championship rings. And it was the president of the Chicago Cubs who called Steve Bartman and asked him, would he come to his office there at Wrigley Field? And so without any kind of fanfare, the press knowing, Steve came. And when he got there, it turned out that Mr. Wrigley had a World Series ring for Steve Bartman with his name on it, a championship ring, all the diamonds. And they would later issue a statement And they said, we hope this provides closure on an unfortunate chapter of the story that is perpetuated throughout our quest to win a long-awaited World Series. While no gesture can fully lift the public burden he has endured for more than a decade, we felt it was important, Steve knows, he has been and continues to be fully embraced by this organization. Steve did not make any kind of interviews in keeping with what he's done the last 14 years, but he did issue his own statement. Although I do not consider myself worthy of such an honor, 
I am deeply moved and sincerely grateful. Words alone cannot express my heartfelt thanks to the entire Ricketts family, Theo Epstein, and the entire club's organization for this extraordinary gift. I humbly receive this ring not only as a symbol of one of the most historic achievements in sports, but as an important reminder for how we should treat each other in today's society. He wears the ring and says every time he looks at it, I am reminded of how we should treat each other in today's society. Sometimes you need forgiveness. And other times you offer forgiveness. But to treat each other with some respect and dignity and compassion. It's not what we always see in our culture but we are called to a higher standard. The disciples remembered what he had said. You and I don't need a World Series ring to remember. We come to worship. And we come to worship to remember the standards that we are called to. And we make a commitment on how we're going to treat one another. And secondly, I believe the disciples remembered Jesus said, Enter into the joy of your master. When I was hungry, you fed me. And when I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you comforted me. And they said, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or in prison or naked or, or sick? And Jesus said, whenever you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. They would remember how Jesus called to say, we are called to care for the least of these. That life is more than just about me. My pleasure, what I can gain. As a follower of Christ, I have a responsibility to care about the least of these. That's why I love the history of our church. 128 years ago, we build this tabernacle downtown as Oklahoma City begins, and we opened it up to Oklahoma City public schools to try to help educate the children. It's why in the 20s and 30s and 40s, our United Methodist women had so many bake sales to support missionaries here and around the world. It's why in the 1950s, we started World Neighbors an organization that has blessed millions of lives literally around the world. It's why today, three different after-school programs, ministries, and when you look at our child care, to total, over a thousand children every day are blessed by St. Luke's. I think about what we do through mobile meals, what we do through Skyline, through NSO, taking care of the hungry and the poor. I think of the trips we've taken to Russia, that we've taken to Alaska, to Honduras, to Houston. We have always had a passion that we understand you enter into the joy of your master when you remember to give yourself to something bigger than yourself, when life is not just about me. I saw a documentary recently about climbing Mount Everest. 
Now, you know that I, I like adventure, and I'm willing to kind of risk and get it out there. But I got to tell you, climbing Mount Everest has never made my top 10 list. And after watching this documentary, I'm sure it will not ever be on my top 10 list. To climb Mount Everest, and since it was first climbed in 1953, four to 5,000 people have uh, made it to the summit. Over 200 died trying. If you want to climb Mount Everest now, it'll probably cost you somewhere around $50,000 for fees, for your guides, for your equipment, um, all those things. It'll probably cost you $50,000 unless you decide to do it nice, and it'll cost you $100,000. It will take you probably two to two and a half months to scale to the summit. It's amazing when you look at all the people who want to do it, and it yet first wasn't done until May 29th, 1953. Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Naegud. They were the first to climb it. It was a New Zealander as well as his Sherpa guide. It was an amazing feat. Hillary had been there in 1951 and tried and failed. He came back in 1953 with a group of eight people from England, and he was the only one, along with his Sherpa guide, Tenzing Norgay, to make it all the way to the top. When they got to the top, they outrolled their flags, but Edmund Hillary took a crucifix and he buried it in the snow. It was a powerful moment for him. When he came down, of course, he was now world famous, knighted by the Queen of England. It is Sir Edmund Hillary now. And he began to travel all around the world and he wrote a book and a lecture. He soon was leading an expedition down to Antarctica and the South Pole. And then he turned right around and he was leading an expedition back up on the Himalayas. And in 1959, up on the mountains, that's when he became sick from altitude and problems and they thought he was going to die. And it was the Sherpa people, these guides who rallied around and managed to get him down off the mountain and nursed him back to health. And Edmund Hillary said, I discovered how much I loved the Sherpa people. He said, I'd been working with them for years, but I'd never really seen them. He began to look and he saw them in a new way. It was no longer about me climbing mountains. He saw the Sherpa people. He saw that they lived in houses of mud and sticks with no electricity, no running water, no medical care. The average age of death was 20 years old. He saw the people. He said, I love them. They loved me. And so he started the Himalayan Trust Fund. Wherever he went, he began talking not only about the expeditions, but about the Sherpa people. And he began to raise money. And he began to, to get volunteers. And then he moved his family there. And they began to work with the Sherpa people. They built 22 schools. They built hospitals. They dug wells. He changed their world. And as you can only imagine, the Sherpa people felt like Edmund Hillary sits at the right hand of the Father. I mean, he changed their world. 
And in this documentary, I, I want to read you what, what he had to say. As I tried to help them, I was never happier in my life. Happier than when I was on top of the highest mountain in the world, I discovered a joy in serving those people. I'm no hero. I'm no hero. That's the creation of the media. I'm an ordinary man of only average talents. His friends would then say, no, he's an extraordinary man because he cares so deeply for other people. Enter into the joy of your master when you do it under the least of these. When you choose to care about something greater than yourself, when you give yourself to something more than yourself, that is something you'll never regret. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen.